Welcome back to the Noel Kassler podcast. Hopefully you could hear that. It's been a minute. Episode 101. Thank you guys for listening. It's good to be back. I know some of you guys were like, where are you? We miss you. And I appreciate that. I was on vacation. I was taking a little break, recharging myself. And uh, now I'm back. There's a lot to talk about. And I know we're going to be uh, we're going to be going strong for the next, you know, year or two. <laughs> That was two years straight, the first one. So let's 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 get it started for the next uh, time. I wish I could talk to you guys in person and ask how you've all been. Uh, I assume you've been well, and uh, I've been well myself. I healed from my little uh, Mohs surgery thing, and I was over in Europe. I'll tell you more about that later. But I went over to Amsterdam for a couple weeks, and Portugal. Lisbon, to be specific, wonderful city. If you get a chance to go to Lisbon, take it. Wonderful people, wonderful food, wonderful buildings, wonderful weather. You know, it's just a wonderful place. And uh, Amsterdam is probably my favorite city on the planet these days. And it's just filled with uh, incredible art and incredible people and beautiful canals. And everybody rides a bike and everybody gets along and you don't hear sirens and you don't hear horns and you don't hear angry people yelling at each other all the time and you're not choking on carbon monoxide, carbon dioxide exhaust because most people are riding bikes and they have an incredible public transportation system. So like where I was staying in Nord across the Amstel River, I would get on a free ferry that was always there. There's two of them that run around the clock. So you hop on a ferry with your bike and then you take like a five-minute little, you know, jaunt over the river, and then you get on your bike and you ride on the bike, you know, lanes all throughout the city, and it's beautiful. And if you haven't had a chance to visit, I know it's sort of a privileged thing to do because it isn't cheap, but uh, it's really amazing. And I'd been there before on, on, you know, music tours, and I've had some days off in Amsterdam. I was in a Trailer Park Boys episode that we shot in Amsterdam. <laughs> With uh, Graham Nash and Stephen Stills, we shot we shot an episode that I'm in at a at a concert we did there. But uh, I'd never had time to actually explore the city. You know, I'd walked around and done whatever. But uh, this time I got to go to Vondel Park, which is like their central park, and I got to go to you know the Vermeer exhibit, which was the reason I went there, which was an incredible, incredible, you know collection of his paintings he only made like 36 paintings in his life and I think they had like 26 or 27 of them there they didn't have the girl with the pearl earring I know that's what you're thinking it went back to Den Hog it was in the exhibit but they had to give it back to Den Hog to the museum there which is just up the road um, a week before I got there but you know it was funny of all these paintings like you could see most of them between the Frick collection and the Met, which are both kind of down the street from me in New York City and and the National Gallery in D.C. So between those three American museums, you could see 70% of what I went to Amsterdam to see. Of course, seeing it all together all at once and seeing it at 10 o'clock at night, I got tickets for the last showing on the last day of this exhibit. Uh, it was really spectacular and it was special. And it was special to do something and have the opportunity and the privilege to do something that was purely like an artist date. I don't know if you've ever read The Artist Way, but it was purely for inspiration, for my soul, because I needed it. You know, I needed to see some beauty and to see, you know, 
some of the apex of human achievement. And, and we can find that in the arts, right? You go look at Rembrandt, who's obviously the other famous painter from from Holland and, you know, and the Ricks Museum has the Night Watchman, which is being conserved. You know, they're, they're having a big conservation thing on it right now, which is fascinating. But like you, you see these achievements and, and it just reminds you or reminds me what humans can accomplish. The first time I saw Michelangelo's David, I, I was like 21, something like that at the Uffizi. And uh, I couldn't believe it. Like, I couldn't believe that a person made something so perfect. And uh, sometimes it's nourishing to view that kind of stuff, especially when you can tend to get down on human nature, which is easy to do in our country these days, let's be honest, right? You know, we're not, we're not hitting it out of the park on a human level these days. Not all of us, right? But some of us are doing bad stuff every day. And our headlines are inundating us with that, you know, with human suffering and greed and avarice and ignoring climate change and all these kind of things. So it was cool to go to a hip, cool place that was a little forward thinking, right? It's not just the art and the antiquities they have there. And, you know, you, you know the themes of this podcast. I'm not unaware of how the Dutch achieved this wealth, <laughs> okay? Like, you know, that's a whole other conversation, you know, and they had these riches and, and these wonderful things because, you know, they went around the world stealing shit, let's be honest, and, uh, you know, from other people in other lands, you know, which is kind of the European business model for, 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 for much of, of modern history. That's a different story. You know, now they're a very sort of forward-thinking progressive people, a very liberal city, and um, though they're having their own right-wing issues, and I don't want to get too into that, but they're at the forefront of their political culture at the moment. Their prime minister is, is resigning, and uh, or president, whatever they call it, but, uh, you know, because he, he's taken a hardline immigration stance and they can't find an agreement. But that stuff is going on around the world, and I'm not trying to ignore it, but I'm trying to say as a society, they seem a little ahead of us, as much of Europe does. You know, we're, we're sort of a, a country that's not crumbling, not coming apart at the seams, but I'm comfortable having both of those terms come off my tongue easily, right? Because the fabric that holds you together, the idea of cooperation seems to be frayed in our land. And you can break it down to simple things. It's like just being on a bicycle with all these people packed in on a ferry. You know, I thought about it. It's like the bikes are designed so you sit upright, right? And you're holding the handlebars in an upright position so your eyes are forward. You have peripheral, peripheral vision. You're aware of the people around you. And when everybody gets off the ferry, which is packed, they get on these bikes and they start riding in like every direction possible, right? Because you're right by the central train station. It should be a disaster, right? There should be like 10 people crashing into each other instantly every moment. And there aren't at all. I didn't see anybody crash into each other the whole time because there's an awareness of each other, right? It's like they're all working in concert with each other. And what should be chaos is not precisely because there's an awareness and a humility in that sort of travel, right? They're not isolated in cars listening to talk radio from their political point of view or cranking up music, you know, they're out in the elements, they're breathing the air, they're all reacting to the temperature and the rain or whatever's happening in that moment together. And they're all incumbent, they're all sort of relying on each other to not crash into them and for them to not crash in, into each other. And that might so sound like a simple thing, but if you practice that kind of thing every day in, in, in your life and in civic life, it, it, it breeds a cooperation that I feel like we've forgotten to some extent. You know, and I'm basically a New Yorker, lived in, in Manhattan most of my adult life, and, and we were famous for that for a long time. You know, you'd get into the subways and you were crowded or whatever, but everybody kind of did it. And we had this rhythm that worked. And, you know, there's still a lot of that there, but it seems to be crumbling to some extent. I was in the city yesterday and Monday and, you know, it, it, it's a spiritual thing. It's almost like a spiritual malady 
has descended upon the U.S. and and we can change that. And I wanted to step out of it for a minute and and examine those issues. And that's what I've been doing. I've been writing about it a bit. I'll write more about it, but my Substack has some of that. And that's what I came away with. You know, it's it's like these people are all out together every day, commuting. They're sitting at cafes. They're laughing. They're talking amongst their friends. There's a there's a I don't know if joie de vie, I suck at French, you know, there, there's that, there, there's just a, there's a feeling that you don't get here everywhere. And, and, and those feelings are important, right? Because we're only here for so much time. And it, it's, it's the blink of an eye when you really think about it. And we're wasting so much time as a nation, you know, time that we could be spending trying to deal with climate change, you know, trying to deal with integrating the natural world into our daily life instead of just constantly going after capitalism and sort of greed and building and stuff. You go to the park in Amsterdam, Vondel Park, and they only mow the parts that like people are going to sit around, right? They don't mow the whole park. They let a lot go to to meadow and we do that to some extent in central park there's north meadow and you know the the the, the crossover uptown and stuff where, where they let the, they let it go a bit but here like if you're not sitting on that particular grass they're letting it grow they're letting the pollinators and the bees and the butterflies have a shot then this is in the middle of the city you know and it's what i'm trying to do here in the backyard i let all the the meadows go this year or i let the the, the acres go to meadow. But um, what I'm saying about that is there's these little things that you begin to notice that we've lost. You know, I was at a restaurant, like in the park, like a place to get drinks and pizzas or whatever, and you chill and it's really nice and you're sitting there at a table and it's this beautiful place. And I, I went to the bus station to put my dishes away, right? And, you know, it's kind of a bar, people are drinking and stuff. And I had like a ginger beer. I don't drink, obviously, but I had like a ginger beer and they put a lime in my drink. And when I went to the bus station to put my glasses and my dish away, I noticed there was a bucket and they were collecting all the limes to compost them. Instead of just throwing them in the trash, they were collecting these limes, you know, out of these drinks in a park. And I thought, like, if you're aware of something so small and hip to it and trying to make a difference, like you're ahead of the curve. You know, we can learn from that kind of attitude. And that might sound silly to Americans, like who cares? But you know, I care and we should all care because what we're experiencing now with climate change is devastating. You know, I'm coming to you in the middle of it. Cities are burning up all over the world. You know, Italy's breaking records here in this country. Phoenix, it's been like, a, you know, over 90 degrees for a hundred something days. You know, it's over 100 degrees most days. Florida, the ocean, you know, the, the oceans are, are so hot, it's like 90 degrees in the Keys. That's like hopping in a jacuzzi. So that stuff is devastating. We're in it now. It's not going to stop. And we have to find all the little ways in our lives where we can try to make a difference. Is composting a single lime going to make a difference? No. But is getting hip to the idea of doing that going to make a difference? You're damn straight. And those things that we think are, you know, superfluous and don't matter, we got to change our attitude. You know, you don't have to mow your lawn every three days and get some kind of OCD thing about your lawn. Let it grow. If you're using something gas-powered, don't do it all the time. Don't use a gas-powered leaf blower, you know. Don't take a superfluous trip to the grocery store and wait, wait, waste a bunch of gas if you don't need to. You know, if you live in New York City, like a lot of my friends do, and you think it's cool to come home to a cool apartment, so you leave it on 65 when you're at work all day for 12 hours, as a friend of mine does in production, you know, because he's always hot, don't do that stuff anymore. It's not cool. I haven't been running my AC through this whole heat wave, you know, which is a bit extreme, but that's where I'm at with it, and I'm up in Westchester most of the time, so it's a bit cooler. You, you don't have that luxury in the city, but you can conserve energy and you can save the juice for those who need it, the elderly, the infirmed. So, you know, we, we all have to make efforts to, to kind of pitch in and, and battle this thing. You, you can't give in to 
sort of fatalism and think, well, it doesn't matter and my little thing is not going to make a difference. It all makes a difference, right? A butterfly flaps his wings and it's a, you know, it's a, it's a tsunami in China or whatever the uh, analogy is there. It all adds up. You know, I was telling you once how I squeeze, you know, the tea bags before I squeeze the tea bags. That sounds, uh, <laughs> that sounds, uh, never mind. I'll keep moving. Um, how I squeeze them so that I get the water out of them before I throw them in the, in the plastic, you know, garbage thing, which I hate using, but my town makes you put it in those pl black plastic, you know, bags. But I squeeze it out. So the water, you know, obviously is not going to evaporate in plastic and it's going to add weight. And that extra weight is going to go on that diesel powered, you know, dump truck that's coming to pick up the trash every week. All these little things. Don't order something and have it delivered to your door if it's already been shipped to a store near you. Try to pick it up locally. Try to shop locally. Try to get less cars on the roads. Because that was the big takeaway for me was just how little vehicles were there and obviously they pay a lot more for gas they always have that's why they drive smaller vehicles and they use them less we've sort of felt like it was the american birthright to have a giant car with a giant engine and cheap gas right that's been a political issue in this country for way before i was born you know we invented the cars we invented the highways you know we're gonna we're gonna drive them any goddamn way we like you know that time has passed. I'm not going to get into the big pickup trucks yet. I know I do it every episode, but like we got to think about that because when you step away from it and you come back in, it's jarring. It's jarring. And it's easy to get overwhelmed. It's easy to be like, man, how are we ever going to make a difference? And it's also why it took me a minute to start doing this again because I was like, I have to collect my thoughts. You know, I don't want to be negative rambler preaching you know, guy, but I got to be honest with where we're at and, and we got to stay positive and we got to do our part because the other side is trying to do all they can to make sure we don't address climate change. You know, on the political spectrum, you have all the dark money that's funding, you know, RFK Jr., who's a complete whack job, who I've met. I did a show at Carnegie Hall with him, Glamour Women of the Year. He was a presenter and he was a complete asshole just a jerk and you ask anybody who worked with him at river keepers and stuff he's always been an arrogant prick he's obviously mentally ill he abused his ex-wife she killed herself her own family wouldn't attend the funeral that the kennedys arranged because they blamed him for her death you know talk to billy baldwin who was his neighbor if you want to hear more about that he defended michael skakel who was his cousin who murdered martha moxley like he's always been a bad dude as a lot of kennedys were and i'm coming from a place where you know kennedys were gods in my household i'm an irish catholic family you know my grandmother worked for bobby kennedy in dc uh trying to educate you know working in like schools and stuff for young kids and she was his hero she didn't know him personally but she worked for him and uh you know, RFK, or JFK rather, you know, was a god. My family's originally from Springfield, Mass, on my maternal grandparents' side. So the Kennedys, you know, well, you know, it's, it's, it's the blue chip, you know, name in American politics, and for good reason. Those two men were inspirational, and Ted Kennedy did a lot of good work in the Senate. Obviously, he never would have survived the Chappaquiddick thing it had, had it been modern times and had there been the Internet and more people had heard about it. He wouldn't have gotten away with that. And uh, I don't need to get all into that now. But so my point is, you know, there's been a lot of Kennedys that have had a lot of issues. I know one of them uh, pretty well in the city, and he's not the greatest dude in the world. He's a cousin. He doesn't have the same last name. But like any family, the point I'm trying to get to is you'll have troubled folks in your family. And RFK Jr. is that troubled one in the Kennedy clan. And he has no business in politics, and he has no business trying to destroy, you know, a Democrat's chance at getting reelection in probably the most tumultuous and crucial election that, that we'll face since the last one. That may sound cliched because we've been hearing it a lot, but, you know, it's all on the line this next election. We know that from the New York Times piece that came out the other day that I'll get into in a minute, right, about what Trump will do in a second term how he will consolidate power, right? 
And this has all been gamed out by the Heritage Foundation. And you guys who listen to this show, you know I've been talking about all the money that comes their way since Reagan took office and the Koch brothers and these guys sort of morphed from the libertarianism of the John Birch Society into this new, hey, we got to react to whatever Carter did because people are getting woke to conservation, they're getting woke to environmentalism, and we don't need that. We need to kill that in the crib right now. And that's when you got the Heritage Foundation and all these sort of right-wing think tanks that wanted to sort of consolidate power and dismantle the, the, the sort of, they call it the unitary theory, where like the president has all the power and the three branches of government that James Madison had, had sort of designed along with others to, to make sure no one person had too much power, to make sure we couldn't basically have a king again. They wanted to dismantle that, so as long as their king was in office, their profit margins would never be affected. They wouldn't have to pay a lot of taxes, and they could continue could continue to exploit workers and the environment for their own benefit, right? So that's where that all started, you know. And that's Heritage Foundation. That's you know, that's Reagan. That's Bush. That's Bush W. You know, obviously. Then you get Clinton and Obama, who are the antithesis of that, and that's why you had the Tea Party forming during Obama. You had you know during Clinton, you had what's his name, you know, they're all disgraced, but you had Newt Gingrich and, and people like that kind of fighting back, and they, they sort of changed their philosophy to make conservative politics completely tied in with a, a, a Christian, white Christian nationalist ideal. That's when the NRA beefed up their political operation because they saw this as the easy thing to sell to their constituents, as I've said many times on this show. I don't want to go back into all of that, but so that whole cultural movement has now come to a head. You know, now it's clearly black and white, almost a good and evil kind of thing, and Trump is running on that. He's just like, this is my brand now. I'm a fascist. Elect me. I will be an authoritarian, and I will seek revenge on those, you know, those people you don't like, right? Like, that's the plan. And they're saying it out loud. And that's going to appeal to people, right? Because a lot of people enjoy the sadism of the modern Republican Party, right? They enjoy the fact that these guys are like, you're okay to hate your fellow man, and I'm going to punish them further if you elect me, right? Look what Governor Abbott is doing in Texas. He put razor, razor wire on the Rio Grande to ensnare migrants, that were coming across the river. A 19-year-old pregnant woman got stuck in one on a guy's pecan farm and miscarried as a result of it. That's medieval stuff. That's barbarism. And even that farmer was like, take that stuff off of my land. And the governor and the Border Patrol were like, no, we're keeping it there. The Border Patrol had orders to push people, men and women, breastfeeding women, back into the river to let them drown. Drown. You know, the razor wire itself was put in the water to the extent that if you got caught in it in the water and pulled down by the current, you would drown. Literally torture devices, you know, medieval devices designed to end human life for political favor. And, and this guy's a MAGA hero. You know, people vote for that in Texas. He's a cowardly little man in a wheelchair who went jogging in a rainstorm in River Oaks, the name literally has big trees in it, as I pointed out. I got fam in River Oaks, you know, through marriage. And, uh, you know, it's a wealthy neighborhood. And when he was a law student, he went jogging, even though there was a thunderstorm and a tree fell on him. And he sued the landscaping company and he sued the homeowner. And he got a big insurance payout of like nine million bucks that was paid out to him, him in an annuity. And he used that money and he ran for office, and he became the Texas Attorney General, and he struck a deal with the insurance companies that he would enact tort reform if they were going to support him. And they did, and he did. And now nobody else can get a payout and a settlement like he got. Now there's a cap at like $250,000, right? So a typical Republican move, like, I got mine, and I'm pulling up the ladder so you don't get yours. And that's what immigration is. You know, Texas was Mexico to begin with. We stole it, you know. This country was stolen, right? So anybody who's anti-immigrant 
you have no basis to be like that. We came here and committed genocide to take this land, you know, and then we worked it with enslaved people that we stole from another land. You know, that's our original sin, and we've never made good on that. We don't pay reparations. We don't take an honest accounting of who we are. When you get sober, if you want to stay sober, you basically have to have a complete personality change, right? You have to sort of change the way you're wired. And how you do that is you take an honest inventory of what you've done, and then you make it good, right? You, you make amends, financial restitution. You know, if you got drunk and stole something from somebody, you, you go back to them with humility and say, I took this from you, and I'm sorry. I know I was wrong. I won't do it again. I, can, I need to do my best to make it right. We've never done that as a people, as a nation. And that might be too much for some people to swallow, but we're seeing the results of it now, right? Because you have millions of people that have this sense of entitlement. You know, well, my family didn't have, you know, didn't have any part of that. We didn't have a plantation. Why should I be paying something? Well, you're benefiting from it, whether you know it or not, you know? And because we didn't address that, it allowed politicians and cultural figures to keep, you know, pushing that on, on folks, you know, it's okay to be ignorant, it's okay to be xenophobic, it's okay to be misogynistic, it's okay to be racist, none of that stuff is okay, and you're not going to be a healthy human being if those things are within you and you don't exercise them, right? You need a shot at redemption, and we all need a shot at redemption, you know, you have to constantly redeem yourself. That's not to say I hate this country. I don't. Lots of good people and lots of good things have come here. I'm an American. You know, I'm doing this because I love this country and the people in it. And I'm tired of the suffering. And I'm tired of the inequality that I see all around me. And that has morphed into this sadism. You know, if you follow me on Twitter, I was real pissed off about this government Abbott thing. I think Biden should be in there today with the DOJ shutting it down whatever this operation is. You know, they have to address it. We can't let this become the new normal, torturing people for political gain. We have to stop it. And how we do that is we get honest about who we are and, and, and where we come from and where we're heading. And Biden's a great example of this. You know, the Biden administration is an inclusive administration, right? We've discussed that before. Right? He's heading in the right direction. Is he perfect? No, nobody's going to be in this time. But you don't un upend him as a Democrat. And that's what Kennedy's trying to do. That's what Joe Manchin is now trying to do. Joe Manchin, who's going to be in New Hampshire or just was this week as part of the No Labels organization, which is extremely funded by dark money, co-founded by Joe Lieberman. Lieberman's been a Democratic spoiler for 20 years, obviously a world-class asshole, you know, like RFK. You got to be an asshole to do this, you know, in such a sensitive time, you know, you can't, you can't do these things. I don't know where Cornell West is coming from. I've met Cornell before. He called me brother when I met him, and I was proud of that because I was a big fan in the 90s. He's obviously a brilliant guy. I understand from a protest standpoint the, the things he's trying to say. But from a pragmatic political concern, I don't know where he's coming from. He's obviously not going to get much of the vote, and I don't think he's much of a threat. And, and he's going to get in trouble for what he tweeted today about Israel. Not that Israel shouldn't be criticized. They should. You know, Netanyahu's a thug, and uh, how they treat Palestinians is awful. But, you know, he's picking a fight he's not going to win. And... Uh, what he's saying can be used by anti-Semites to make matters worse. So, so, so none of this is, is helpful. It's all by design, and it's all well-funded to disrupt the next election. Okay, So we just have to keep our eyes on it. It's not to say any of it is going to work. It's just to say, let's be careful. And let's understand fully what these motivations are of these people. They just need to shave off enough votes that a Republican, you know, Trump, they're hoping, can, can get those electoral, you know, votes in, in these few swing states that are going to continue to be swing states. That being said, the good news is Trump is going down. He was, a, or he got a target letter yesterday. He's not indicted yet. 
He may have to show up in court in a matter of days. And uh, I think the letter said four days. He said he got it Sunday night. You can't believe anything out of his mouth. You ask him what time it is, and he'll lie to you just to practice, right? <laughs> but, like, if that's four days, then tomorrow or Friday he should have to have another court appearance. And that'll be, what, his second federal indictment? He has the New York indictment. He has the Georgia indictment looming, right? So all of these things are going to take him down. I don't care what anybody says. I think this January 6th stuff, they have him dead to rights. There's over a thousand classified documents. He apparently ordered Mark Meadows to leave the White House the night before he left, you know, I guess January 6th or the night before he left D.C. with a thousand pages or something of classified documents. And, and nobody knows where Mark Meadows is. And the word is that he has been cooperating and speaking with Jack Smith. So that alone will be the end of Donald Trump, as it should be. And I think if Trump goes down, the good news is it'll be a very anemic Republican field, right? It'll be Yunkin or Mike Pence or, you know, none of these guys that have a backbone, you know. Chris Christie, who will never get elected nationally and is a wonderful debater. You know, I'm not saying he's a good dude, but he's a great, skilled debater, and he'll eat. Ron DeSantis like a plate of garlic knots and paramus at Sunday dinner. You know what I mean? He will destroy Ron DeSantis, who will short circuit if he even shows up to the debate stage. And that's something to look forward to, you know, on a cheerful note. Like, Ron DeSantis is just awful. You know, he's just an awful guy. His campaign is tanking. He tried the same stunts that Abbott tried, you know, let's torture migrants for political points. And even that isn't working, right? Because Florida's dependent on, on, on migrants to do a lot of skilled labor that it takes to produce our food. And, uh, you know, he's tanking. He's sending his wife out for his campaign event. So all of that should be good news for the Democrats. The spoilers aside, you know, and RFK is, is such a loose cannon that he'll probably be a, a non-entity by the time the election comes around. And, you know, the no labels. Joe Manchin could really be a spoiler. And I, and I, I wrote a substack about that this week. And obviously Joe Manchin is a very venal, corrupt man who's been in, you know, in bed with the oil and gas industry his whole life. He, he bought a coal plant when he was a state senator and made the town of Grant, it's called Grant Town, West Virginia. They had a power plant and they needed a permit to build this power plant and he said, or to expand it, and he said, well, you can do that. I'll, I'll make sure you get the permit, but you can only buy the coal from me. And he sold them gob, which is a cheaper form of coal that most coal companies just throw out because it's considered like trash and it's highly polluting, even though, you know, most coal is pretty polluting when it burns. This stuff is even worse, right? But it's cheap and it's crap and, and, and Manchin had tons of it. So he made this coal plant sign a, you know, exclusive deal with him. This is 1987. It's made him a wealthy man. He's made millions and millions of dollars off of this while poisoning the people in his own state for decades. You know, that's the moral character of a man like that father of Heather Bresch, you know, the Mylan CEO who raised the EpiPen price from 100 bucks to 600 bucks, 500% increase to increase profits for an EpiPen, which is most commonly used on children, you know, if they have a peanut allergy or something and they, they get exposed to it, you put this pen in them and it will save their lives. You don't make something like that more expensive, you make it free, you know, you make sure every classroom has one. But that's that American attitude of capitalism and unbridled greed. And the Republicans have fought to protect that at not just an institutional level, but at a cultural level forever. And it permeates into all this culture, right? Jason Aldean, right? He looks like a bloated, like, he looks like a bloated uh, Kenny Chesney. Right? He looks like if Kenny Chesley, Kenny Chesney had a younger brother who was an alcoholic and did car, tailing, car detailing and a, had a vape store. That's what Jason Aldean looks like. <laughs> okay, Crap music, pablum, written by committee, like so many of these Nashville hits. It's just five people sitting in a room churning out MAGA crap about small towns that don't even exist anymore. Right? They're always 
writing about, you know, as if they're sitting on the back of a, you know, a field with a, you know, piece of hay in their mouth working the, working the crops, you know, when you go to a small town, it's a dollar store and a bunch of fast food restaurants and dudes with tattoos on their neck, smoking meth behind a 7-Eleven, listening to hip hop, <laughs> you know, they're not sitting around with fiddles and banjos and catching catfish and all this crap that they sing about in the songs, you know, it's corporate crap, but it reinforces this sense of identity and this sort of very racially overtoned, you know, white, you know, God fear in Christian American rural life, which is just bullshit. You know, people used to bring sack lunches to lynchings in these towns, you know, after church. Okay. There's not a lot of history there to be proud of, you know. So, and Jason Aldean himself shot a video for this song in front of a courthouse where there was a very famous lynching in the 40s, I believe, you know, and that's not as a dog whistle, that's a bullhorn. And in the song itself, he, he talks about his, I got my granddaddy's gun, you come and take it from me, I'm going to kill you, son, or whatever. I'm paraphrasing, but that's essentially it, which is like an NRA talking point, right? Because first of all, it's not your granddaddy's gun that people are walking around with anymore. You know, it's an AR-15. It's an assault rifle that was designed during the Vietnam War to cut through bush and still have a bullet powerful enough to rip apart the human body. It was designed for one purpose, to end human life as quickly as possible and as many people as possible. And those are the type of guns that a guy took up to a hotel room with thousands of rounds of ammunition at Mandalay Bay in Las Vegas and started shooting out of the window into a crowd that was listening to Jason Aldean perform. And my buddy who was a lighting tech was on that stage and helped get Jason Aldean's bloated ass off the stage, right? Where 60 people lost their lives in the crowd and 400 people were injured. My other buddy was hiding behind a car down on the street not knowing if he was going to live or die. You know, that's the reality of guns in America. That's the reality of the NRA today. And that's what this guy is singing about. He got a settlement from that shooting, you know, and now he's going to give a pro-gun, pro-lynching song and try to put it out on the airwaves and slip it past to poison people, right? But he's not going to get away with it because people heard it and they, they're pissed, and CMT itself pulled the song. You know how messed up it has to be for CMT to pull your song, you know, and you're one of the top stars? But that's the caliber of person that's going to sign up to do this kind of cultural stuff that reinforces the kind of politics I was just speaking about, right? They want to keep people dumb, right? And you keep them dumb by you giving them simple things, you know, my granddaddy's gun. You're not coming to take it. Nobody's coming to take the guns, but he had that NRA talking point in the lyric, like they want to come and take. Nobody wants to come and take your guns, your grandpappy's guns anyway. We definitely want to make it illegal to buy an assault rifle, especially in places like Nashville, where a whole classroom of kids were murdered earlier this year, children, you know, I talked about the little girl who pulled the fire alarm to save her fellow classmates and lost her life. She was shot dead in that hallway. You know, a sane nation, that happens, and it never happens again, or very rarely happens again, because you do something about it, like in Australia, like in the UK. You know, when I was in Europe, and I was in all these crowds, I didn't have to worry about getting shot. I was at the Feast of St. Anthony, in Lisbon, the whole town shows up to basically get drunk and eat sardines in the streets, you know, in these tiny medieval, you know, streets that have been there for thousands of years where you're all packed in. In America, I'd be like, I'm a target. There's nowhere to run if somebody pulls out a gun. There, I'm like, nobody's got a gun, you know, or very few people do. And the cops have them, you know, who should have them. But it's not legal to walk around with a weapon of war the way it is in Tennessee and Kentucky and all these places, right? And, and to have this culture reinforcing it, hoping that the next generation of voters hears that and they're like, hell yeah, I'm going to put on some Al Dean and I'm going to vote for MAGA, man. 
want to keep my way of life. It's not your way of life. Your way of life is being robbed by oil companies and venal politicians who don't give a crap about you. They're taking away your health care. They're taking away your right to an education. They're taking away your freaking books. They want to keep you so stupid that they don't even want you reading things that will illuminate your mind. You know? The benchmarks of American culture are being ripped out of libraries in Florida because they want a permanent underclass. You know? You think the bluest eye is going to harm you? Toni Morrison, one of our finest writers ever that any nation has ever produced? You want to elevate those people. You want to put it in a museum and say, come and look at this. It's important to see art because it'll help you connect to your own humanity. You know, that's why I went to Amsterdam. I had to get out of this country for a minute. I had to go into a museum and say, hey, in the, within the human spirit, there is an ability to create beautiful things that communicate circumstance so somebody else may see it and get in a, in a deeper touch, in deeper, you know, connection with their own humanity. Vermeer painted women in, in homes, very simple scenes, because back then, that was your place as a woman. You were in the house all day, you know? You were plucking the duck's feathers out to get dinner ready and baking and doing whatever, you know? Cooking. You were sitting in the home. You had a few possessions, a very simple life. You maybe had a lute or an instrument that you played at night, you know? That's what he painted, you know? They were fantasies. The girl with the pearl earring wasn't a person. She didn't exist. It was like AI before it existed, you know? She was an ideal of what people thought was attractive at the time. And she's hot, I mean, I gotta admit. But uh, <laughs> she's still hot, she's still attractive. But my point is he was, he was trying to show women, right? He wasn't, before Vermeer, it was basically historical paintings, right? Rembrandt, all, all the, you know, Da Vinci, all this kind of stuff, Michelangelo, it was all biblical scenes, right? It was Jesus and, and people laying at his feet and somebody washing his feet and these big tableaus of, you know, tables with grapes and food. And it was all wealthy people. That's who got art, right? That's who got immortalized, was the wealthiest among us. And Vermeer basically showed everyday life in great detail, you know? And his great skill was this... His, his innovation as an artist was just his use of light. They call him the master of light. He would just show light and perspective in a way that was, you know, it was kind of like a still life, but it had life in it. You know, it had a person in it or something or a couple people. And it's just amazing. And they're tiny. I mean, these paintings are 12 inches, 16 inches. It's not some big thing. You have to kind of like gather around to see it in the Obviously, the, the museum was very crowded, but you, you got a chance to be one-on-one -on -one, a couple feet away from these things. And, you know, it's breathtaking, and it's breathtaking to see, you know, a snapshot of humanity that's lasted centuries. Or that was, you know, 16th century, 17th century, right, 1600s. So, you know, and he died broke. The day after he died, his wife owed money to the baker, you know, for bread. And they came collecting. She had to declare bankruptcy, you know, and what paintings they had left were taken and stuff from them. She had to hide her jacket, this yellow jacket with the fake ermine collar that shows up in a lot of his paintings. Because that was the other thing is that people had very few possessions. So a guy like him, he used the same props in each painting. It's amazing. You know, it's amazing. This guy died broke. He had like 14 kids too or something crazy right, and died broke, young, 40s, you know, which isn't that young back then, but relatively young, suddenly got sick and was dead two days later, no health insurance, you're not going to the hospital <laughs> back then, and now, you know, 400 years later, whatever, I'm not good at math, you know, 500 years later, whatever it is, people are lining up for six months to go see this guy's work, because it tells us something about ourselves, something true about ourselves. And, and that's what we need is truth, right? There's always a theme in these podcasts. I don't know what they are until I get to the end. But I think truth is what we need to see and, and clear-eyed vision of, of what the motivating factors are in our society right now. And a lot of it, as I've said before, is the oil and gas industry 
trying to control politicians and judges. They own the Supreme Court, right? I don't have time to talk about all that's gone down since I last did a podcast, but they they did away with Biden's student loan forgiveness program, which is insane and inhumane. You know, I'm not as bad off as most, but I've had student loans since I took them out in 1995. I graduated in 96. I'm still paying over $200 a month. And I've been, I graduated, you know, 25 years ago. You know, and I've always paid, I've never been in default. I've had forbearances, 9-11, the pandemic, sometimes when I was just broke, before I got sober, I couldn't keep up with the payments, so I got a forbearance, but I've never been in default. I've continued to have them just automatically take over 200 bucks out of my bank account every month as they're doing now, and I've never touched the principal, okay? I owe more today than I borrowed, and if I'd gotten the $10,000 credit that I was you know, eligible for under Biden's program, it would have brought it down to my original balance because it's $10,000 of interest that I've accrued since then. Even though I've been paying monthly, that would have been wiped out and my payments going forward would have touched the principal, which would have been a good feeling, right? I'm 52. It'd be nice to pay that off. Obviously, I could have done it with a lump sum. You know, as I said, my situation isn't as bad as most, but I haven't done that because I never have, uh, you know, an extra 10 grand laying around or 16 grand, I think is the principal. And if I did, you know, I got something else I want to spend it on these days. So go to medical school, go to law school, you know, get some real debt. I went to drama school. You know, I got two years worth of loans. People got four, five, six years worth of student loans. You know, you're talking 80 grand, 160 grand, 200 grand. You're never getting out from under that debt. And it disproportionately affects minorities, African-Americans, women, you know, people that don't have, you know, parents that can pick up the, the tab for, for schools. And, and even state schools are super expensive now. You know, when I was a kid in the 80s and 70s, you go to state school for five, $6,000 a year. Now it's 20 grand a year and more, right? So how do you afford that? And why do you punish people that are trying to better themselves? Because you want a ruling class. And that's what the Supreme Court was protecting. They were protecting mediocrity, white mediocrity, right? And in Clarence Thomas's case, Clarence Thomas's case, there's a lot of irony in the fact that he, you know, wrote, <laughs> wrote the like, the Supreme Court ruling that said we're going to end affirmative action. A guy who benefited from affirmative action, who got to go to Holy Cross and Yale Law School and then turned his back on affirmative action to protect the ruling class, right? The, the mediocre punk, you know, whose daddy is friends at, you know, has friends at the country club and stuff who gets C's and gets into Harvard and gets out of Harvard and gets a good job at a you know, financial firm. That's how they keep everything going because you keep it in the family. That's what they're trying to protect. And that's what a lot of, you know, more progressive things are trying to change. The more progressive elements of our society are trying to change that stuff, right? Wesleyan, a great school in Connecticut, just announced today they're done with legacy admissions. You're not just getting in because your dad went here, your granddad. You know, that's a good thing. Make it on merit. You know, let's get some brilliant people from all walks of life because that's what we need now more than ever. That's what's going to solve climate change, you know. Rather, we're not going to solve climate change, but that's what's going to make a difference. We need all the talents and all the skills of all the people in the world to pitch in to save all beings, not just humans. This is about saving life on the planet, you know not protecting the ruling class, but that's what the political, you know, the political apparatus is designed to protect now, at least on the conservative side. And that's what we're going to change. You know, we're going to vote next year. We're going to pay attention this year. We're going to watch Trump get indicted. We're going to look at some art. We're going to be creative and kind to our fellow man. We're going to conserve every way we can, any way we can, as often as we can, we sort of have to get out of our comfort zones. You know, we have to be willing to be uncomfortable because the planet is uncomfortable, you know, and, and we're 
I was going to say we're relatively well off here. We're not. Towns two over from me got flooded last week. Flooded. I was up in Montreal this weekend. I drove into Montreal as a tornado hit. Montreal. I saw it. I was on a bridge, the Champlain Bridge, going into Montreal, and this giant thundercloud, you know, descended upon us. And the, the warnings that came over our phone and were on the screens on the roadway were like, you won't see the tornado. It's hidden in the cloud. Seek cover. Seek shelter. And I'm like, I'm in a car, <laughs> you know? And, and, and on the bridge, they were just like, hold on to the steering wheel. The winds will be high. Biblical stuff right? Towns washed out all over New York State. Vermont, I couldn't even drive through Vermont. I took, you know, 87 up through the Adirondacks. I wanted to go through Vermont, you know, but Montpelier, a beautiful town I was just in a couple Christmases ago, was washed away. Oh, I mean, the town wasn't washed away, but tons of damage, right? Climate change-induced storms. Hurricane Ian down in Florida, great reporting in the Washington Post, Brianna Sachs did. Just the other day, on the 17th, it came out on Monday, about people on the west coast of Florida in the Fort Myers area that still don't have homes. They're retired people living in storage containers. And now the heat down there is 100, above 100 degrees every day. You imagine living in a steel box with no air conditioning and it's 100 degrees outside? That's how human beings are living, many of them in the same state where the governor is flying around the country in a private jet that he borrowed from a billionaire to try and run for president so he can bring that model of governing to the rest of the country to punish people on behalf of the wealthy few. It's like, you know, Bastille Day was last Friday. We're, we're heading towards the, the reason like the French had a revolution, you know, the Russians had a revolution. You know, what we're, it's getting so bent out of shape. The scales are tipping so much. And the only way it can continue is if people remain ignorant. Because it's our country. It's not theirs. It doesn't belong to them. And we can't let inequality and just the outsized wealth dictate everything we do. And, and in order to reverse that, we have to be very smart with every choice we make. You know, we have to be very smart about what companies we support. We have to support workers. We have to support unions. In the time, you know, the writer's strike began on March 2nd, I, or May 2nd, excuse me. I did the last show on, the, on May 26th. In that time, SAG-AFTRA is now on strike. I support both of these unions. You know, a lot of my friends make their living in these unions. I've made my living in concert with these unions, though I'm not a member. I fully support them. I would be a member. If you want to send me a SAG card, I'll be out in the picket line tomorrow. But, uh, you know, I'll do what I can to support anyway. But uh, that's my dream was always to be in those unions. I was offered the DGA once, and I don't need to get into why I didn't do it. I probably should have. But, um, <laughs> um, but as a stage manager, you know, not like a director. But anyway... Uh, Oh, I digress. Anyway, labor is out there. UPS might go on strike. You know, Starbucks, the, the woman who started the Starbucks, Starbucks unionization program in Buffalo, New York, was at the White House yesterday meeting with the president of the United States, a young woman with purple hair talking about what workers need, health insurance, a livable wage. And you got an administration that's listening to that, that's inviting that person to have a seat at the table, that young person. You know, Republicans don't want to hear from somebody working in a Starbucks. They want to hear from Howard Schultz. They want to hear from the guy who owns Starbucks and how much money he'll send them so they can give them a tax break. That's the, you know, the favor they're looking to curry. I don't even know if that's a sentence. But uh, you, you follow me? So, so like power to the people, you know, that, the workers. We have to unite. We have to stick together because it, it is kind of us against them these days. You know, and, and the more we can see that, the more we can lift up and support our fellow man, the better off we're going to be. And we're going to get through this. And we're going to make the changes we need to make to adapt to this changing climate. You know, and, and the next episode I'll talk about this more, but we need to tap into the spirit of ingenuity that we have as Americans. You know, I, I'm often very critical of this country that I love so much. 
and the people and the mindset and I, you know a lot of people are ignorant and it's generational but we can we can reverse that and, and you know I know guys who vote for you know Trump and have been and tend to vote Republicans and you know a lot of these guys aren't bad people they've almost just been brainwashed and it's generational you know it's a it's an identity thing my dad was a cop my dad was a fireman in New York it's a very you know it's like the being a Yankees fan it's just this cultural thing and if we can and, but these are hard-working people you know one-on-one -on -one, these guys will show up in the middle of the night to fix your furnace or whatever it is you know dig out your driveway or you know, whatever it is they do, you know, they're hardworking people with a lot of ingenuity. And what I propose is that we sort of tap into that spirit, that American spirit of like, hey, we've led the world in so many ways. Let's lead the world in conservation. Let's lead the world in battling climate change. You know, let's make it, you know, not a personal virtue, but a civic duty to conserve. Let's, let's put our brain power and our hard work towards that goal and make it almost a competition where we're trying to outdo each other to be more ecologically correct. You know, I got a neighbor who mows his lawn four or five days a week and has a professional lawn service come, and it drives me nuts. We got four-acre zoning in my town, meaning everybody's got at least four acres. There's a lot of horse farms, and there's some wealthy people here. I'm not one of them, but, you know... They're big yards. So, so hearing lawnmowers go all the time for no other reason than aesthetics is BS. I'm not saying you can't mow your lawn at all. I don't have the lawn service coming this year, but I got an electric mower, and I mow out by the pond where we sit. You know, you can do a little bit and leave the rest. That, that's what I saw in Amsterdam and Vondel Park. You know, I, I went on the highways. I took a train in Amsterdam. I talked about the train shutdown, but I took a train... And uh, did I tell you guys about that? I probably did. I've been talking so long. But the train shut down when I was there. I went out to Delft the day after seeing the Vermeer, and the train shut down. And I had to get off in Leiden, which was Rembrandt's birthplace, because the train stopped. And they stopped for almost 24 hours, and the whole country was kind of shut down. But people pitched in. You know, they had this spirit of cheer and cooperation. It wasn't freaking out like we kind of would have been taking it in New York. People weren't panicking. They were just like, hey, we'll figure this out. And they got one train line working and they took everybody to a train station on the outskirts and then they had buses to take you to various places. There was a bunch of young girls got stranded at a Harry Styles concert in the stadium outside of Amsterdam and they all took the train there to commute, right, to go see Harry Styles and then the trains weren't running when the concert ended, right? So you got 50,000 teenagers stuck you can imagine the feeling of the parents, like, what, you know, my kids, like, in a parking lot overnight, and people pitched in, people showed up with, you know, the cars and unlocked them and let kids sit in the cars, the Red Cross showed up, they opened centers with cots and everything, they got through it as a people, and the next morning, the trains were running, you know, they worked together in an emergency, and nobody's better than that in Americans, if we dig deep, we saw that in my city in 9-11, you know, 9-11 happened, an hour later, people were down there with bottles of water helping, you know. You had to almost turn people away. Dudes got in their backhoes in Pennsylvania and started driving. People who knew what needed to be done got off their asses and did it. That's who we are. You know, that's going to make me tear up, but that's who we are fundamentally. We have good hearts. We're good people. We come from stock from all over the world that wanted to come here and work hard and build a better life. And that's what we can do. We can honor our ancestors by making good on those promises, by being true patriots, by pitching in now when we need it, not falling for the con men and the grifters and the people trying to sell you some cartoonish idea of what, you know, patriotism is. It's not having a big gun and shooting somebody who doesn't look like you. It's sticking out your hand somebody who doesn't look like you and saying how can I help you you know welcome to America this this is your home now you know what are you good at how can I help you do it you know this is what we're doing want to help you know you want to help that should be the 
That should be the message. That should be the campaign theme going forward because everybody's going to need help. Old people are going to suffer. You know, the elderly, the young people, sick people. It's the, Our system is going to be ever taxed, increasingly taxed in this, with this heat. This heat alone is going to break things, and we're only at the beginning. If you think it's nasty now, this is as good as it's ever going to be. It's only going to get worse from here, which demands we do something about it. Not ignore it, not get consumed with the chaos that's designed to pull your focus away from it, right? That's what Trump and a lot of these guys, you know, what it's really about is paying attention to that so you don't see what's really happening, who's really screwing you over. I always made this analogy that, like, Trump was the guy who'd walk in the store and flop down on the floor and pretend to have a seizure while everybody else went around the counter, you know, and emptied the cash register while you're paying attention to him. That's kind of what's going on in a climate sense. You know, that's why the billionaires send these freaks. You know, that's why the Heritage Foundation, you know, that ostensibly was an intellectual organization about small government and, you know, you could make a case that there was some legitimacy to Reagan and these guys. You know, they weren't quite as, obviously I'm no fan of Reagan, but they weren't Donald Trump. So the fact that they're willing to cast their lot in with a man like Donald Trump, who's already proven himself to be an anti-democratic criminal, shows you everything you need to know. So pay attention to what's motivating those folks that are trying to take your democracy and your very planet and, and your ability to have an enjoyable life on it you know because they're not sitting there sweating they're not in queens right now they're not in brooklyn they're not taking the six train in 95 degree heat they're not burning themselves on a sidewalk in phoenix because they don't have a home they're sitting in nantucket and they're having a fundraiser you know like ken griffin is doing who, who's a big hedge fund guy who gets all the republicans up there every summer and he makes them dance for nickels Right, like Ron DeSantis did last year, a few weeks before he did his little Martha's Vineyard stunt with the migrants. He was up in Nantucket himself getting a check. Right? Wilbur Ross is having a fundraiser for Glenn Youngkin in the Hamptons next week. Right? Who wants to run? So these guys that are doing this, the oil and gas executives, the Wall Street Titans, the head fund, hedge fund guys, you know, they're not sweating it out. Larry Fink, head of BlackRock, just appointed the head of Aramco, a Saudi Arabian oil and gas empire, to his board, to his hedge fund, the biggest hedge fund in the world. Larry's got a beautiful horse farm in my town. It's about a mile from where I'm talking to you right now. I walk by it all the time. He owns like half the, the properties in this town. He's got a lavish lifestyle. He's got a full-time staff to clean his stables and mow his lawns. He's got central air conditioning. He's got a helicopter to hop on, go down to the city. You know, these guys aren't going to suffer alongside you. They're going to continue to profit while we suffer unless we stop them. Okay? All right. Well, enough of that. I think that's almost an hour. I didn't want to come back and rant. If you don't want to listen to it, you don't have to. If you are listening to it, I appreciate you. I know it's a lot. I'll get into the art stuff more. I got to see the smile twice in the last couple of weeks you know you know i love me some radiohead okay so that's tom york and johnny greenwood from radiohead playing with another guy named tom skinner he's like a jazz drummer and they have a saxophonist too named robert stillman and it's like modern jazz meets radiohead meets like punk rock you know incredible stuff really sublime incredible music i haven't felt that way since uh I was a kid and I would see the Grateful Dead or something. I'd be like, I got to go see another concert, you know. That's how I was. I saw him in Queens. It was magical. I've missed Radiohead a bunch of times. I was at Glastonbury with him twice and missed it. I was there in 2010 with Jackson Brown. Tom and uh, Johnny played and I missed it. And I was there in 2011 and I went to see a U2 show instead of the Radiohead. They were both playing at the same time, which is nuts. And uh, I chose you too, and I like you too. I'd just done a Grammys with Bono and the Edge, or not a Grammys, a Tonys. They came to the Tonys for Spider-Man, and I was assigned to them 
And I said, I'm going to be glass in Glastonbury in a couple of weeks. And they're like, oh, come by the gig. Not Bono, <laughs> but like his crew or whatever. Like, oh, let us know, you know, come by. So I sort of went to see you 2 and missed Radiohead. So I finally got to see them in person, Tom York and uh, Johnny Greedwood. And it, it was amazing, amazing music. These guys are like wizards to me and uh, very inspiring. So I saw that and it was so much fun. I had to go up to Montreal and see him again. So I saw them on Saturday. And if you're in Chicago, go see them at the Pitchfork Festival this weekend. You will not regret it. Thank you guys for listening. If you want to support the podcast, sign up for the Substack. That's the only thing in my universe that's monetized. It's $12 a month. If you want to support it or you can get it for free, all the content is for free. So there's no need to pay for it, but it does help sort of uh, keep the lights on. And... Uh, and that's it. Be well. I'll be back again next week. Sorry for the absence, but, uh, you know, I needed a break. I think you did, too. Um, there's, there's plenty of content out there. There's too many podcasts and not enough protests, as I like to say. But I appreciate you guys listening. I love you, and I'm glad to be back, and I hope you are staying cool, and I'll see you next week. Noel Kassler Podcast, episode 101 is done. Peace.